It's a pleasure to have you here. Can you please introduce yourself? And for those who don't know you, tell a bit about yourself. Yeah, sure. Um, so pleasure to be here. I'm very humbled to be invited. There were so many great guests, so it's great to be here. But my name is Antonio Pigiano. I'm an independent security researcher, and I've been in crypto uh, since 2017. I had a small gap to uh, work at a startup uh, in 2018, but then uh, I've been working mostly with um, like smart contracts and since last year in blockchain security. How did you get into crypto in the first place? How did you arrive at this weird place that we are right now? I first kind of got in contact with Coin back in 2011. I was doing like a Bellagio's course on Coursera. It was called Startup Engineering. And basically, uh, he gave away some Bitcoin for everybody to basically vote on the projects that everybody thought was most interesting. So, but I didn't like, I just kind of used it a bit and didn't touch it until 2017 when a friend of mine introduced me Ethereum. So for me, it was like mind blowing. Like we were kind of, we had very simple contracts. He showed me how to use parity. So how to use MetaMask and like what was cape, like how Ethereum could basically, you could do like a lot of stuff and like in a decentralized way and all of that. And, and that's when I decided to leave the company that I, I, I was working on. So I was working at a database company. We were basically building a, a big data, um, a company like from scratch, but I decided like crypto, like was very interesting. So I wanted to work with that. And, um, so I started working with, with these, like these friends and we created a, a crypto exchange in Brazil. And we're, we ran it like until, uh, like 2018 more or less. And then and I, I, I decided to leave the market. Wasn't very well, we very good at the time. It was like shifting a bit and we didn't have any, any funding. Um, so then I joined Swift technology as, as a contractor, they were doing KYC on the blockchain and, and that's like when I also like, I, I worked for a bit with front-end mostly, like web3.js, all that kind of stuff. And, and then I, I left crypto to work in AR to co-found a startup for augmented reality. And last year I, I came back to work in web3 gaming. Uh, no, actually it was in 2021, end of 2021 to work in web3 gaming. And, and finally I transitioned to web3 security last year. Okay. Well, yeah. So. You've been jumping around quite a bit. So what was your, uh, did you say AR or VR company? It was an AR company. It was doing, it was like a company that had an SDK for e-commerce stores to show their products to the end customers. So like, if you wanted to buy a chair, you could just like press a button and see that chair in your living room, for example. So we, we had that, that product. Okay. Okay. And what made you switch back to crypto? Um, well, I actually like for me, like working in different verticals and, and markets was always like very natural. So I, 
I've always been an entrepreneur, like working in different companies, starting different companies. I've already like started probably more than 10 companies in my whole life. And, and, and the reason I decided to leave this, this ER company that I, it was actually like, I had like started it, but we, we thought AR was not in the best, like it was not the best timing. We had some customers like, but it wasn't scaling as, as we wanted and in crypto was like, just like booming again with NFTs, like with Web3 games, metaverse and all that in the bull market of 2022, 2021, 2022. So I decided it was a good time to like come back and, and, and then I co-founded this Web3 gaming company and our, our idea was to make easier for games to use crypto. So we had an SDK with some smart contracts. So I developed a bunch of like ERC20, ERC721 contracts, marketplace, um, like some staking contracts, a lot of stuff that these games they used to, to have. And, and that's, that's how I, I came back and, and it's, it's interesting because like, uh, like in, in 2017 or 2018, when I decided to leave crypto, I, I kind of felt a bit of regret of having done that. And now, even though we are not in the same uh, market as we, we were uh, last year. I, I kind of have decided to, that this is where, where I want to be. I, I think there is so much innovation and so like so much to, to do. And, and it, it's a bit of a cycle, like eventually this will come back. So it's better to be prepared and to keep uh, improving and, and building and creating stuff for when the market uh, uh, gets better. So this is why I, I decided to come, come back and, and not leave again. Yeah. And you mentioned you started around 10 companies. That's uh, pretty crazy. You're like a serial entrepreneur. Have you ever exited from any of these companies? Um, no, I still own some, some equity in some of them, but, um, like, I, I think that's, that's actually like one of the reasons why I'm working in, in security right now. Because I, I think like when you start a company, the, the odds of success, like they are, everybody knows they are very small, even though you can like, I don't know, hit the jack, hit the jackpot and, and have a an unicorn, um, the, like not, not that many companies succeed. And it usually it's not dependent on your skills. Like maybe it's just the market isn't very good or, or, um, I don't know, like there are so many, many reasons why companies fail. So sometimes even because of your co-founder, like you, you might not have a good fit with somebody and, and you might like not get along and then your company won't, won't, won't succeed. So throughout my career, I decided like, so, so I, I've worked at many different companies, like building and starting from scratch, but eventually I realized that, um, kind of it's, it's better like from, I don't know, like if, if you are trying to maximize your odds of success to join a company that's already like that have already many different validations than starting from scratch. So if you start from scratch, you have like a very, very small chance of winning very big. But if you join a company in the early stage, you have like a much higher chance of perhaps uh, making like less money because you won't have like the control of the company. So 
Um, so right now I, I'm, I'm kind of like in this position where I'm trying to learn about security and working as a security researcher and trying to understand what will be my next company. So I'm, I'm still like not, I, have, I haven't given up on, on like working on a product or starting a, a venture, but I, but I don't know yet what, 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 what it will be. And I think it's very important to choose uh, right. So maybe like joining an early stage company that, I don't know, you have like other big co-founders or some co-founders uh, that they are doing well, um, or maybe like depending on the market, depending on the time, the timing. So there are many different variables that I think are important for you to, for your company to succeed. And I, I'm, I'm like trying to understand what would be the best time or what would be the best type, type of company. Um, and while uh, while that I'm trying to learn as much as I can. And I think like security, like security or security research is a very big place to be because you are in contact with so many protocols, so many different concepts, like very smart people building a lot of stuff. So, um, yeah, so I, 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 I'm, I'm kind of like in, in this transition where I'm trying to learn what would be my next, um, I don't know, my, my next venture. Yeah, that makes sense. And how was the transition? between going from web free gaming into getting to security? Yeah. Um, so this was harder than what I expected. Um, I think like when you are building a company, there are so many challenges, but they are usually, um, not related to anything technical. So they are, so, so these are some challenges that they are not dependent on your, on the time you put in, into them. So. For example, maybe you have like a hiring challenge or you have like a management, like some, some managerial type of challenge, or maybe like you need to think about the product and, and you are usually like working in a group and, and you have to like deal with people. So there are very different, these are very different challenges. And when I started to work in web security, it was like more, uh, something like similar to like studying when you were in school, like you had to just put your hands down and, and, and like just study, 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 review a bunch of different things, maybe like get your pen and paper and, and try to work on the math of some protocol or some weird DeFi math. So it was uh, a different type of challenge. And I, I wasn't doing that very often, like that much because like as a CTO, you are more used to like dealing with people. And now I had to deal with, uh, basically like math and, and reading, uh, code and, and, uh, trying to un understand these different, uh, types of attacks basically. So it was a bit hard, but, um, I think, I think there were so many like good resources out there. So Immunify had, had a lot of uh, great blog posts and, and tutorials like Securium Bootcamp. Um, so there are so many, many great resources like Patrick Collins, uh, videos on, on YouTube. So it, it was like a different type of challenge, but I, I think the path is very clear right now. If somebody wa wants to start a security research, you kind of just follow the, the, the path of the, uh, of the, the, the ones that, that came before you and, and it's kind of like you're guaranteed to, to get there. So, um. I think like many people are already broke into security, so it's easier for for those who are coming now because you can just follow the suggestions and, and guides 
that are already right already there yeah for sure now it's there's a pretty straightforward set of resources you can you know like you said watch some Patrick Collins YouTube course to get started on like Solidity Fundamentals and Foundry then you can get into Securium to learn about the vulnerabilities and more the security focus side of things and then you can start doing calls straight away and you know learning uh practicing as you learn so it is pretty straightforward and you've kind of made your niche insecurity in the fuzzy side of things how did that come about yeah so this was like actually by accident uh, i would say um it actually started during my first month as a like a full-time independent security researcher which means like you don't have a job and you have to like go research whatever interests you and it was actually like in the beginning of this year um a protocol uh, a DeFi protocol uh, that some friends of mine uh, like are, are working on it was it, it's called bot pods pods finance they were basically so i i knew these guys um like personally and and they wanted to improve their environment tests they already had it they, they already had them and um what happened is that they received an unify a report of a bug and they thought that they should have caught this bug with their invariant tests and, and they didn't. So, so they, their invariant tests weren't working as expected and they wanted, they, they wanted to improve it. And they kind of, they basically just trusted me to work on it. And I was like very happy to take this project, even though I didn't have any experience with invariant tests. So, so I kind of just did the same as when I was starting, I kind of, uh, did a, a deep dive into what we already had uh, available. So there were some very good, um, trail of beats fuzzing series on YouTube, um, and some very good like blog posts, some examples on GitHub. And I basically studied like everything that, that, that were available out there. And yeah, so I, I began working with them. We improved their tests. We found out the, a number of problems that they had, like some implementation details. So, so because the, uh, the tests weren't properly configured, they weren't uh, reaching all of the states of the, of their protocol. So basically, um, like a rebasing of staked ETH weren't being tested properly. So, so, so eventually like we, we had to like fix a bunch of minor implementation details and we we found some kind of new like minor low low severity issues that were also new like previously like undisclosed from from their from the manual reviews that they had went through and and then we fixed those issues and i i kind of kind of thought oh this is interesting i'll try to keep learning from it and i'll try to keep like doing some research on, on fuzzing and and eventually, so DeFi Security Summit, they, they were calling for speakers. I decided to apply about some benchmarks that I had done for this project. We had done some benchmarks for um, EC2 instances that were better or more opt cost optimized for, uh, for first tests. And basically, my application was accepted. And, and that's when I, I kind of 
also decided to do more and more big, like benchmark and started learning some other tools for closing. So Foundry also had some, some, they, they I think they, they had just uh, released the environment test for Foundry when it, when, when we we're getting close to DeFi Secret Summit. So, so I did a benchmark for those. I presented it on, on, on stage. So a bunch of people liked it. And then kind of, I think one, one thing led to another and eventually, so I met Alex from Badger. He's also a, a judge in Code Arena. Oh, he, he, he was also at the podcast. It was a great chat that you guys had. So he, I met him. He was like, oh, we, we also want to prove our very test at Badger. Let's work together. So I continued working with Badger. We did a, a great kind of a great setup there and, and, and eventually, so more people got interested in this type of work. So I think I, I also like got invited by OpenSense to talk about environment tests. So I think this all started with, with this first project that I did for, for the, um, uh, for the staked Ethereum vault back in February, March. And eventually I just decided to keep starting and, and keep pushing and, um, trying to kind of build a unique, um, maybe like niche maybe, and, and try to keep working on, on the same subject that I, I, I thought was interesting and I, I could keep improving on it. Yeah, that's cool. I think fuzzing and invariant testing is a bit of a give and take because obviously you're making the code more robust, especially in the long term, but it takes a lot longer to implement. So do you think there's a sweet spot where it's like either the time you put into it or a, a certain time, a certain stage of development that you start looking at it rather than like just when it's the audit time? Yeah. So I think, I think not that much have been talked about this, but I, I think it's important and especially for protocol developers, like how, how would you think about for, from like an investment point of view? So like buzzing is great, like everything is great, but you don't have like infinite time. So you, you need to like pick your, your, your tools and, and, and choose your battles. So I think like the best benefit that environment testing brings is for you to get more knowledge of your system. So even the challenge of thinking about the properties of thinking about the environments, that's very hard. So. Sometimes, so more recently, I, I started working with uh, another protocol and they were so early in their development process that they weren't very sure of their invariance. So they know, they knew like the, the most obvious invariance, like, oh, you don't want to lose any money. But if you only put like very dumb or, or like very generic invariance, maybe you will catch some, some generic bugs, but like you, you only go as deep. As, as you can. So I think the quality of what you get from your invariant test depends on your, uh, on your knowledge of your system. So, so because of that, I, I came to the conclusion that it's maybe better to start working on invariant tests when you have like a, a better idea of, of, of your protocol. Like, um, maybe if you are like at, at a very early stage, I think that that might be too early because you might, um, not even know what, what their invariants are. But as you progress in the development process, you start to know what to expect, like what should never happen. This must always happen. This should never fail or this value is critical. If that gets below 
other value, then we're losing money. So when you start to get that sense of the triggers in like, what are the different states of your system? Like what means you, you got wrecked? So if this happened, we got wrecked. When you start to get that, that feeling, that's a good place, that, that's a good time to start. And, and, and that's, so, so this is one like conclusion that, that I, that I, I think in my opinion is it's important. So when, when to start and also like, why doing it at all? Like, and I, I think this may be, um, so, so at the DeFi Secret Sum, I don't remember exactly, but there were some very good conversations about, um, kind of that right now we are too much focused on, on like the industry, the whole industry. Like in the beginning, like some years ago, people weren't doing that many security reviews. They weren't doing any audits. So, and then kind of the industry started to change. People started getting audit. They started inviting security researchers to review their, their code and like appointing some bugs. Uh, and, but like, that's not the end game. Um, because the problem is that you only get, as, as some people say, like you only get like a time boxed security review and, and like a snapshot time box security review. And if you later change your code, maybe like the, your, your review is not like relevant anymore. And I think that happens a lot, especially for protocols that are still trying to find product market fit. Maybe they launch a V1, maybe they'll, they'll launch a V2, like a V0, I don't know, and like a V2, V3, or, or they, maybe they'll have like upgradable smart contracts and they will keep like adding stuff. And I think that's why inherent tests are great because it's like an investment that will um, keep like adding value as your protocol uh, like progresses. So if you play an update, your invariant are likely not going to change. And you still want to like run your tests there and, and make sure that they are, um, they are working. So I think like invariant tests is, is like a, a, a very powerful investment for your development process, like a security investment. While an audit is something more like a checkpoint. So you're kind of good to go, like maybe like with a, a good amount of certainty, you are good to go. But if you do any changes, you need to redo the audit. Why is it, you, if you have the environment test that will keep, they will keep working even if you do those changes. Yeah, I think there's a very important point to make that the value that you get for taking the time and the money and the energy to do a correct implementation or invariant testing is going to be with you for the long term and it's going to keep giving value to your protocol until the day it, it dies, basically. Hopefully it never dies. But um, like you said, defining variants can be quite challenging. So how do you go about doing that? And can you explain it in a way that people would be able to replicate it? Like developers or just anyone looking at a protocol? Yeah, sure. So I, I agree that this is very like time consuming. Maybe I think there are steps on this process that can be optimized and maybe like shortened and, and improved. And I, I'm also very interested in like building tools to help with that. Um, like, I don't know, I, I hope to release uh, a tool to help with that eventually. But I, I think like some of, some of the parts of this step, they can, and maybe they should be done by the protocol itself. 
especially the, the first parts, which are easier, they are usually easier for the protocol developers than for the security researcher, which, which, which are the definition of the properties. So, um, my suggestion is usually to start with the documentation or the white paper, because there, there's where usually you have how the system should behave. And, and more importantly, the white paper or the documentation, it's usually not written by the developer and maybe it is, but sometimes or many times they are written by kind of the protocol designer or maybe the business team or maybe by the co-founders. And they have a very good understanding of maybe like the economic modeling of, of the system or like what it should do or what it shouldn't do. And I think that, that there is, there, there is where you will find most of the invariants. So just by reading the white paper, you'll find a ton of invariants. Um, and it's like easy enough to just like translate from the white paper to like just a list, like a markdown file of, uh, like invariants of properties. Um, and, 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 and yeah, maybe like that, that's like the, the first step. Maybe you can find some invariants from the code, uh, especially the ones that are related to some state changes where some variables will uh, influence on what state will happen or, or not. But like for, initially, I think you can get a lot of value from the white paper alone. And, and then, so, so yeah, so you read the white paper, you start, you list down the properties. And, and that's when you, sh you, you maybe can start working on, on the, on the test, on like writing the test. So it's also usually very, um, and I think that's easy, but it's also time consuming because you're usually just doing like a mentioned test of your protocol. You write all the functions that the further will call and, and you write your invariants. So yeah. So like the user should never have more tokens than what they deposited or something like that. And, and then you just like code all the invariants that you have listed previously. And that's, and that's about it. So if you do that, you're already like, I don't know, you're like, well, I had a bunch of uh, other pro projects that aren't working on invariant tests, but that's when, when the, the tricky part comes and that's when maybe a security expert can help you, which basically and you need to make sure that your invariants are correct and that they are being executed by the fuzzer. And this is where most projects fail, like maybe not fail, but where they need help with. Um, that's, that's the situation where like we had, when I started working with pods back in March, they had their tests, but the coverage wasn't 100%. So because of some kind of details or, or some kind of, yeah, some implementation details, um, the fuzzer what wasn't hit, wasn't hitting some states. And because of that, you weren't getting any like output of the invariants that you, 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 you were trying to test. So, so I think like knowing how to implement the fuzzer will make a huge difference be between like getting a good amount of confidence that uh, your invariants are safe or not. Maybe they, maybe you have a bunch of tests, but they aren't testing anything. And, and that's when you, yeah, that, that's when you need to like, do like, uh, do, do some research, understand how they work, 
Um, so, so as I mentioned, like there are a bunch of res good resources uh, out there. Yes. So like Trail of Beats, YouTube series, some blog posts, a bunch of stuff like that, that you need to understand how to work with the fuzzer so that it works for you. And, and that's maybe when you should either study how, 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 how to optimize and how to work with the fuzzer, or maybe get the help of a security researcher. And is there any framework that you suggest people use when trying to build their own testing suite and their own invariants? Um, well, not that I'm aware of, um, and, and that's, that's something that I, I am like, I, I want to contribute maybe to the, to the, to the ecosystem, because I think, I think this, this is a still like a fairly new, um, like even though like Ekidna has been like in, in the ecosystem for a long time, I think, um, mostly trail of bits what, what, like what was using the tool because they, they were developers and you could read some of their audit reports and get some knowledge of how they were using it. Um, but I think like it, and, and you could also like follow some, some of their public GitHub repos and try to understand their best practices. But, um, it was, it, it was not very like easy to like just get started. So I think it was not as easy as let's say like Foundry. So I think Foundry did a great job at making it more accessible, like for the know, average developer, like for everybody to just write post tests. And I think like Foundry did a great job of helping like people have plus tests, but I think there are not anybody working on like democratizing environment tests. This is what I, what I wanted to say. So, um, so as I mentioned, like you need to make sure that you are like not wasting any buzz runs from the inputs that the buzzer give you. So you need to like use some specific functions and not some other functions. And then you need to like preferably code your parents in this way and not in this other way. So you have like this, all this bunch of rule of rules of thumb and, uh, you need to like know them by heart, all of those, when you are starting your very tests, um, and there, there isn't any great frameworks that do that for you, like that kind of make that, that process easier. So, um. Yeah, so I, I think maybe like we could have, and this is some, something that I'm thinking about working on, maybe maybe we could have some boilerplate contracts, some boilerplate function, function calls, or maybe like some general structure that will make your life easier. Um, so that hopefully it will like decrease this this kind of amount of time that's necessary for, for, for projects to start working with invariant tests. Have you heard of the branching tree technique? Uh, yeah, we, from Paul Oberg, I, I watched, I watched his video about it and I also read the, um, kind of the, the, uh, the, the presentation slides. And we also try to implement some of it on our, um, on Badger's price feed because it's a very complex contract with many different like branches, like if, else, if, else, if, and. And I think like it's a great way to think about the different state of the system. And I think it also can help with invariant tests because you can more easily know the expected state and think about the invariant for each different state. 
but it's still a manual process. So you, you need to like do all that manually and then do the inverted test manually, like kind of another, like once again, it's a good technique, but it's still a manual technique. So this is why I think not many projects are, are doing that. Yeah, it can be very time consuming. Is there a way you think this could be approached in a less time consuming way and still reap, and still reap the same amount of benefits? Well, I'm very bullish personally on kind of code generation and AI tooling in general. So I think like, as I mentioned, I think like usually the first steps, the first step from all these different techniques, they are um, describing in plain English, like how your system behaves and like either like reading the white paper and documenting the variance, either like reading through a function and, and describing different branches of the tree. You are just writing plain English. So I think pretty soon we should have some maybe like LLM models or maybe like chat CPT, uh, uh, integrations or something like that, that can generate code directly from the description that you are making from your system and create that code for you and, and help you with creating those tests. So I think that's very, very powerful. And I think we're very close to that, like given, given the, the advances on like AI and LLMs in general. Um, so, it, and I think that's, that's huge. Like. Um, if I were like a, a, I don't know, like AI security company, I would definitely be working on that. Um, and I think like that, that, like that, that, that adds a lot of value to everybody that, that, that wants to work, that wants to improve their, their, the security of their projects. Yeah, I agree with that. I think we're going to see a lot of good things coming from the intersection between AI and web pre cybersecurity pretty soon. And you mentioned some pros and cons between Echidna and Foundry. Can you elaborate a little bit more what you like about one versus the other and why you choose to work with one more versus the other? So when I was like a, a developer working on, on the SDK for web three games, we were using Foundry a lot. Like when, when it was still like a new thing, so everybody was a bit like, I don't know, not scared, but like afraid of switching from, from hard hats, maybe like they weren't sure that what was going to work. So, but I, I, like, I immediately saw that first testing was a huge value add and, and, um, you, you, you were basically like getting, I don't know, like 1000 tests written for you instead of yourself, right. In different scenarios. So. So I, I already started using Foundry and FuzzTest uh, since like, um, I don't know, like two, maybe like two years uh, ago, but, um, but Foundry for a long time, they, they didn't have inverted tests. And I think I, I, I don't remember exactly, but it, it was like a, a pretty recent update where, where, where they introduced it. So when we, um, when I started working with inverted tests. There was only a kidna, so I started doing some research on it. And eventually when Foundry released their invariant tests, or maybe when they, they added documentation for it, I don't remember exactly, but I think they, they did an update and that's when I, I started working on it. 
And that's when I saw that. So it wasn't as feature rich as Echidna. So Echidna had many, many more features. So Echidna had, so, um, like transaction replays, so basically you could share the transactions that the fuzzer had found with your friend or with another developer so that they could test the same transactions. You could also see the coverage uh, report like on, on, a, on an HTML file and see exactly the different state that the fuzzer was hitting or not. And so this, this was very important for the types of tests that we were doing. Um, but on the other hand, at least like, like, like empirically, we thought that Foundry was faster, but we weren't sure. So that's that's what that's when I decided to do this benchmark for the DeFi Secret Summit, um, like talk and like, like yeah. So so I, I'm I'm not sure exactly why, but it seems that in, in many cases Foundry can be faster than Echidna, um, and and we didn't see any difference in like the how good each tool was uh was in terms of finding bugs because both will find will find uh all the bugs that uh, uh I, I was trying to find when when i did my benchmark but founder was generally finding them faster so i i was like okay so founder is faster but it did not have more features so what am i gonna do so i, I decided to like keep studying and working with both and this is eventually what led me to um, generate this uh, kind of process of um, leveraging the best of both worlds up with both tools, which is what we've been doing at Badger. So basically, because Echidna is better at finding, at finding and showing you uh, what sequences will break your code, you basically use it to find those sequences, but then Foundry is faster at like iterating and fixing the code because you can more easily change your code and see what's wrong and what's right. So basically we could just like write a converter. So a very simple like converter that could get the transactions from a kid now. You could copy paste them on Foundry and just replay them there. And this is what we've been doing. And we saw like a huge uh, boost in productivity basically because we were like using the best of both tools. And then eventually Medusa was also released or maybe it was released earlier, but then I think more people started using it. They found a, a bug in Solmate, if I recall correctly, using Medusa. So we started giving it a try. And then we also found that Medusa was very fast, but still like some features. So right now we're actually using like uh, all of those, like the three tools. So we have a very generic setup and we basically run like uh, in parallel and we try to um, kind of always create an unit test uh, on Foundry using the output of those uh, of those tools, and yeah, like, I'm not sure if that's like a long term solution. Like that's a bit cumbersome. You have to like know how to work these different tools. But for now, it's it's a good way to leverage what's the best of each each of those. And, and this is why I think there is a potential to like to have better tools to make this process easier so that you don't have to like keep copy pasting stuff or maybe like switching from one to the other and and maybe eventually i don't know like maybe eventually foundry will implement some of the features that it has and maybe because it's faster 
maybe people will start using it more, or maybe Medusa will just like start gaining more adoption because it's also very fast and and um, and, and the code base is, is written in Go, so it's very easy to read and, and to to extend also. So yeah, but I'm not sure like which one will win, but right now we're trying to learn and use all of those. Yeah, I see. We're it, like tooling wise. I feel like the whole web three security space is still on the early, early stages, still baby steps and different kinds of projects. Would you recommend different kinds of tools? Like for what kind of project would you recommend Echidna over Foundry, uh, over Medusa, et cetera? I think, I think like when the project's starting, I wouldn't that, I don't know, I mean, uh, I don't know, that, that might be my, my opinion, but I would. I would stick with Foundry until you know your invariants and you want to implement invariant tests. Because for fuzzy, uh, I think it's, I don't know, like good enough. It's super fast. It's already integrated. Even though you can run Echidna on like stateless fuzz tests, like Foundry fuzz tests, I'm not sure that there is a huge benefit. So I would prefer as a developer just sticking with Foundry for as long as kind of, as long as I need. And then eventually that's when I, that's what, that's like how I mentioned, like eventually you start to understand how your protocol should behave and what rules should never break. And there's when, like, I would definitely switch uh, to Echidna because I think, uh, I think with Foundry, like right now, like without these very important features, it's very hard for you to implement invert that. So yeah. So. I would definitely use Echidna, like if you want to implement burn tests, uh, w because it, it Foundry still doesn't have these very important features. And like, as being a nerd or like a security researcher, I I would both Echidna and Medusa because the API is the same. So this is a huge benefit. I think it's, it was very smart uh, of them. You, you, you kind of like the, the setup time is, I don't know, like five minutes. If you have an Echidna setup, you just do like Medusa in it and you're, you're kind of like good to go and you're basically just like trading, at least like from, from my experience, you're just like basically trading a more mature tool that you are more confident for a maybe faster tool. And, and yeah, like, so you can just like run both. Um, yes, but, but I'm, I'm very like, like personally, I, I think like Medusa is like, I don't know, maybe my favorite one. Because I, I think the configuration is very easy to set up. It's very clear. The output, the logs, they are very beautiful. They are kind of the, the best between all of those. Um, the coverage report is also very easy to read. Um, it felt very easy to extend. So we, we had some issues with Badger that we were using some opcodes, uh, not some opcodes, but we were using, we were deploying some contracts that didn't have an API specified. Um, and basically like Medusa was crashing. So I, I talked with Anish, like one of their uh, maintainers and basically just helped me. And I kind of compiled it locally just by switching some, some lines of code in my, in my computer. And I could never do that with Echidna because Haskell is uh, very hard. So I, I think like this is a lot of, uh, a very good, like develop, developer experience. So personally, I, I'm, I'm very, um, confident in, in, in Medusa and it, in like. Uh, I still haven't started it, but pretty soon I also want to add to my Bell Halmos 
Um, because if Echidna and, and Medusa, they have the same API, so they make it very easy for you to use both. Then Howmoose has the same API as Foundry. So people who are working on first test for, for Foundry, they should definitely try using Howmoose. So from A16Z uh, crypto. So yeah, I, I haven't uh, had time to, to test it, but I think it's also like a very promising tool and, and um, but still under HLIs, I don't, I, I can say a lot about it because I, I've never used it, but I, I think like if you are using Foundry, maybe give almost a try. If you are using uh, Echidna, maybe give Medusa a try. It's very easy to switch between these tools. I know that these tools are always evolving and there's going to be upgrades and they're going to have more functionality over time. But if you had to choose one right now, just one to use in a project, which one did you choose? Mm, I think I would choose Foundry. And I think even though it don't, it, it doesn't have like many important features, they are still like, like implementing a lot of these features for invariant tests. I think the value that you give from like writing tests in solidity and having buzz tests kind of out of the box is, is kind of like maybe a good, like 80, 20, like a good burrito while the other tools, they require more effort and maybe they'll give you more kind of more confidence, but they also require more effort. So as a, as like, as a, a developer, you kind of have no excuse not to use first tests, but maybe you have an excuse not, not to use invariant tests because you don't have any time, uh, you, you don't have enough time. And this, this, this is curious. This is, this is why I think like some audit companies, they will help you implement invariant tests, like drop bits, they will write some properties and some echidna contracts for you if you are doing an audit, an audit with them, but. Like as a developer, you can, you can write your own buzz test using Foundry. And I'm aware that you're building a tool on the fuzzing sphere as well called fuzzy. Can you tell us a little bit of what you're trying to do and why you're doing it? Yeah. So this, this platform is called fuzzy. It was, it was actually also born like, like by, by accident. When I first started working with invariant tests together with Bots Finance, so basically they had these um, kind of they, they had this need of running Echidna on the cloud, and the reason was that they they had very kind of maybe complex contracts and they didn't want to waste time from their developers by stopping to run a very long fuzzing campaign. So that's, so when, when I worked together with them, that gave birth to remote Echidna. It was the first kind of open source project where basically it, it was a bunch of Terraform scripts that would launch EC2 instances and would run Echidna on your GitHub project was basically it. And I decided, oh, maybe like if they want that, that can be useful for other people. So we can maybe, um, create a plat platform out of that. So I, I worked, um, on my free time on, on, on fuzzy, which is by the way, open source. So the whole code is, is, is public, which is basically kind of the same idea, but you also have a front end 
So you can basically see the list of your jobs, of your Echidna or Foundry or Medusa campaigns. You can see the status, you can download the coverage report, you can download um, the corpus so that you can replay those transactions locally, which is very useful if you're trying to do like a mix of some cloud tests and maybe download the output to do some tests locally. And, and yeah, so they were kind of like the first kind of users of this platform. And, and, and then I kept adding some features. Um, and in, in the beginning, I, I was trying to, like, I was maybe like thinking about, Hey, maybe this is the project that I will build. And this is like my next venture. But then I, I, I talked to a bunch of protocols and I saw that like, it, it's very, it's, it's not very, it's very unusual for projects to be that advanced from, from from the point of view of like having all their environment tests implemented and like wanting to run them for hours and hours. And like, that's like a very, um, um, like you're like optimizing a lot when you're at that stage. So I, that's, 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 that's exactly like when I, when I saw that the, the tool was like a bit, uh, uh, like ahead of its an time. Yeah, exactly. Exactly. So I said to like. Yeah, so maybe like I'll, I'll, I'll use it for projects that want to improve on their very tests. And, and since it's like, yeah, like it's already done, so it all works. But um, um, yeah, I think that there, there's still like more ground to be done on some initial stages of the invariant testing like journey, let's say. So for example, automatically generating uh, the tests maybe like converting from English to Solidity, maybe um, making it easy to like, I don't know, like run all of these different tools from your founder tests, maybe. Yeah, so, so I think there, there's a lot of work that should be done on these initial stages, uh, which is why I think like I'm more like right now focused or interested in, in, in this part of the, of the environment testing like journey basically. Yeah, I think it makes sense. And as the industry progresses, I think something like Fuzzy is going to be more and more enticing as projects become more solidified and more people join and there's more at stake. Because a lot of the projects nowadays, they have a quite a short lifetime, right? So it doesn't make sense to do all that optimization for the testing suite. But as you see projects with a longer lifespan, then it's going to start to make sense to invest in that kind of technology and use something like Fuzzy. So although I think now it's a little bit too early for most projects to think about that kind of thing, in the long run, I think that's a really cool project. I think, I think it's a little bit like, I, I see it a, a little bit as similar to formal verification. I'm a huge believer in, in formal verification. I think like that's everybody, like everybody should do it, but almost nobody does it because you kind of need to put a lot of effort uh, in it. So I think that's why only like the pro the protocols that are very mature and that they have like a, like a lot of, a lot of stake and that that's when they start like worrying or, or thinking about that. Um, I think, I, I think maybe it's like a part of the project's uh, life cycle, maybe when, when they start adding like layers and layers of security, 
maybe they'll start with some plus tests. Maybe they'll add some inverted tests. Maybe they'll do some form like formal verification. So I think that's, that's a bit of like a part of a, a journey of a protocol. That was exactly what I was going to touch upon now, actually. I was going to ask you about your views on formal verification versus fuzzing slash invariant testing, because both of them are time consuming, formal verification, more time consuming in most of the cases. So what are your two cents on this two different kinds of tools and when should one project use one versus the other? Yeah, so I, I should start by saying that I'm not like by any means a formal verification expert, but I, I think like I, I, I'm very like, I don't know, optimistic and, and bullish about it because I think, um, generally speaking, smart contracts, they are, they don't, they don't, or they shouldn't be very complex. So that's a good like ground to, to implement like formal methods. Because you can usually list or have like a clear view of all of the different states of your protocol. Uh, but that, that's not always the case. Some, some of these protocols or some of these contracts, they are very complex, which is why you have a lot of challenges of different challenges for formal verification. So that, that's when you kind of like need to start thinking about the trade-offs, the, the trade-offs of kind of the investment that you put into it. And, and maybe like the, the other alternatives. So I, I think like generally fuzzing has a very kind of uh, uh, constant kind of development cost. You, you do have like to do some, some initial setup, some boilerplate code, but after that, you, you kind of like, you, you already expect what, what, what you see and, and the guarantee that, that, that you see. So, um, so I think like generally speaking from, from, from my point of view, Fuzzing has have a like has has a better like initially has a better trade off. So you're getting like a, a a better bang for your buck because it's easier to implement. But when you need more assertion, when you need more confidence, maybe that's not not enough. Then you should you, you should like switch uh, make the switch um, until we have tools that make this process easier. Um, so like maybe that's where maybe Howls will who come and, and, and help like change this, this, um, this bound, but, um, as a protocol developer, that that's, that's what I, what I would think about. Like, so maybe I would start with fuzzy. I'll get some good confidence. And if I have more time, if I have more budget, I'll, I'll implement or I'll work with formal verification because I know that more time consuming, but at the same time, I will get a better, uh, I get better guarantees. So let's say a protocol, protocol reached that time where they have a pretty solid testing suit or frozen testing suit, and they're thinking whether should, they should invest more time in building up their invariant tests or more time in building up their form of verification. When would you advise them going one direction or another direction? Yeah, so I don't think... So I, 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 I've already like worked uh, as a user, like as a developer with some formal verification platforms. And I think you, you usually spend like a, a significant, like a, a amount of time understanding the platform uh, like itself 
and not necessarily working on your variants. So, so, so this is why I think it's like, let me put it another, another way. When you're working with fuzzy, you have, you have like the setup time of your fuzzer, you have the setup time of thinking about your invariants, and then you have like the optimate optimization time. Um, and when you're working with invariant tests, you have the setup time of your invariant tests. You have to think about the invariants and you have to like optimize for the platform. And I think the, um, the work that needs to be done for the property description for the properties descriptions, they are the same for both those. So this is why kind of you should start with them for both. They're, they're used for both. And I think generally the time that you need to spend to set up the puzzle and to optimize the puzzle is lower than, smaller than the, the time you need to spend for formal verification, like for these two processes. So this is why like, I think it's easier, generally easier to start with fuzzy. And then later you kind of will we reuse the same properties that you have already built, that you have already tested, but then just redo them for another tool. Um, so this is what I would do, but, um, but yeah, I, I, I think like this, like a bit, maybe like controversial, but I think it, it would be, in my opinion, maybe, maybe like faster to do it this way. Yeah, no, I agree. And maybe in the future, Hamos can be expanded a little bit and can cover a more wide range of possible use cases. For those not aware, can you tell us a little bit about Hamos, what it is and what it does? Um, yeah, so I, I also like, I'm not an expert, but I only use it like on a, for, for like some, some very basic tests, but Hamos is like a symbolic testing framework that work very well with Foundry. So you basically reuse the same, the same Foundry fuzz tests that you have, but under the hood, um, these tests, they are converted in, into like nascent T-Sober. I, I might be mistaken, but like maybe like the Hamos folks can correct me if I'm wrong, but they, they will basically convert them and try to solve them with, with an SMT solver which basically means that you get a, like a, 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 a guarantee that your tests, they are passing because the, the assertion that you're trying to prove is correct, or you get like a counter example, or maybe you get a timeout. So you, there are only these three different possibilities. So, so basically the good thing is that you get no false negatives. Um, um, you can have maybe a timeout, and then you need to rework on your tests or maybe increase the timeout. Um, or you get a pass and you're, you're sure that uh, that function is doing what it's supposed to do. So I, I, I think like it's currently being used a lot by some libraries, some um, projects on the more like stateless um, um, kind of property-based tests. So for example, um, they did like they, so they, they, they did some tests for Soulmate to verify that there, there some, some of these very optimized yield assembly based functions, they weren't, uh, um, like incurring in any rounding errors or, or anything like that. So they were able to, to verify that. And, and so this is like great. And usually like you, you, you aren't able to do that with buzzing alone because 
it would require you to test all the many different uh, possibilities. And so I think that's very powerful. But right now, Howl, for example, doesn't have full property-based tests, which is usually what you're interested in, like from a protocol perspective, like like from a high-level perspective, perspective, because it usually takes many different functions called in different orders by maybe different actors with different inputs to break an environment. So, um, but this is on, on their roadmap and they, they are, they will eventually like make possible to implement these property-based tests with Halmos. So I, I think that's also like a, a very good, yeah, like very bright uh, future for, for the tool. But right now it's a bit kind of limited. So you need to like work these different tools depending on what, what you want to test. And yeah. something else I wanted to touch up, touch on is your experience at the Y Academy ZK Fellowship. Can you tell us how was that experience like? Yeah. So it, this was like a very cool uh, experience and opportunity. I have always been very interested in, in ZK. That's like uh, a, another topic that I, I, I still like learning and, and want to learn more. Um, so Y Academy, they launched their ZK fellowship, the first cohort, I think it was in June or July or something. And, um, so I, I was accepted, they didn't require any previous ZK expertise, but I had already done some, like, I don't know, like some courses or YouTube videos, basically. I, I saw a very good presentation from Porter from I think ZK Sin explaining the basics of ZK, like a, a little bit more in depth. So I, I worked together with Y Academy on two different audits that they were, so it was like the fellowship consisted in some lectures and also two audits of some ZK protocols, um, that had already gone through some kind of audits from like other very, very good companies such as Veridize and, 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 and others. So we were basically trying to find if try to see if we were able to find some different stuff from, from these companies or maybe to validate their findings somehow. And also to work on link for the system, basically. So as there but a, a good outcome from, from the, um, fellowship, I, I was, I contributed to a tool for Circom. I created a mutation testing tool called Cir Circom Mutator which basically mutates the circuits and so that you can see if your tests are covering, like if they are, so it, so, so basically the tool injects some bugs, some well-known ZK bugs into the circuits and it checks if your coverage will like change or not from your tests. Basically it's a tool to check for your, your, your coverage. And it was interesting because it, it would like, it, it's, it's a tool that actually validate if your tests, if your tests are comprehensive or not. And it, it was able to find that some of these projects, they had very simple tests and some of the issues, they weren't, uh, covered by the test. So it was like, actually we, we were able to find that, uh, some of the tests were, were lacking and another person from, from the cohort also implemented the fuzzer for, for Circom. Um, for, for the, for the circuits. Um, yeah, so, so this was a bit of the fellowship. 
And I think like in the end, what I, what I gained from it was more like, like, I don't know, like it, it got me motivated in each, like keep learning from it because this, the fellowship was super like dense. Like we had like some very complex, um, lessons from, I don't know, like very smart PhDs talking about very complex topics. And we were like, man, this is too hard. I need to study harder. So I kept studying, studying, and, and, um, eventually we, we, like, I think I left with more homework than, than, than what I was able to, to do during the fellowship. And I have like a bunch of, I don't know, like material to read. Um, but I, but, but I, but I still want, want to study more about the subject because I think it's super interesting and, and, um, and I, I think like ZK has a lot of interesting applications. So. Yes. So, so this was my, my experience at, at the fellowship. So I really recommend for those who are interested, they will probably have another cohort soon. So if you are interested in ZK, do apply. I think I really enjoyed it. I think I would have enjoyed it more if I had like gone through some of these materials, like before joining the fellowship, because it was very dense. So if I had like more knowledge, so they, they, were, they didn't require any previous ZK knowledge, but if I had it. I think I would have enjoyed it more. So that's my recommendation for future uh, fellows. Yeah, that makes sense. How long does it take the length for the fellowship? I think it was a two months, but we had like some lectures and some audits and, uh, um, yeah, so. Yeah, I, I think like it, it, it was spent. I think they, 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 they required uh, a minimum dedication of uh, 20 hours uh, per week, but I, I, I was definitely like doing more than that because I didn't have any previous knowledge. So I had to kind of catch up uh, with some other fellows that already had some big knowledge and some others didn't either. So I think they were also uh, studying on the side to catch up. Um, yeah, yeah so, I think... so this is why I think it's a good idea to uh, uh, get to the fellowship with some prior knowledge. Yeah, I agree. I think it's a great advice. ZK is such a dense field of knowledge that if you can prime yourself for a fellowship like that, you're going to you're gonna enjoy it a lot more and get a lot more out of it for sure. And speaking of ZK, now we have the ZK Sync audit going live in Quarterina. Are you going to dive into it? Are you planning to have a look at it? Well, I am. Uh, I'm not sure because like one of the problems of, I don't know, starting to do like private engagements and working with protocols is that you kind of get some time with your schedule full, like ahead of time. So I didn't know this audit was coming. Like, I think they, they, they announced it like recently. So if I knew I would probably have blocked my, my time even to just look at it. But right now I'm kind of like filled with a lot of stuff and, and maybe I'll do it over the weekends, but I know that I won't be like very successful because it's very complex. So, um. So I'm not sure, like I'll, I'll, I, I might need to wake up early or late, late at night to, to participate. Uh, but I, I, I think I would definitely do it. Like th there has been a debate on Twitter. Oh, maybe you shouldn't do it because it's too complicated. Like you, 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 we won't be able to 
learn ZK in one week. But I don't know, like when I was starting in C4, I think even if I, I don't know, like wouldn't make any money from the contest, just by participating, you are in like learn so much just by reading the report. Like if you read the report without participating, like that's like, I don't know, like that's one tenth of the value of participating and then reading the report. So I don't know, like I'm a bit of a contrarian, but I, if my recommendation would be for everybody to participate, you will probably learn a lot from layer tools, from your assembly that there's a bunch of stuff like in assembly, it seems. Um, yeah, so I would encourage everybody to participate. Yeah, I totally agree. I think even if you don't manage to find anything, it's such a great learning opportunity. And the best way you can leverage that is actually going and participating. And then you can read the report with a lot more context and get a lot more out of it. And nowadays, do private engagements usually revolve around the fuzzing testing kind of things? Or do you do just purely like a traditional solo audit as well? Yeah, so right now I'm not working on any like solo audit type of engagements. And the reason is that I'm, I don't know, I'm still not confident in like being kind of the last in line before a protocol goes live. I think there's a huge, um, I don't know, like, I don't know, like th th there's a huge, not, not, not necessarily risk, but I would say you, you need to like be very, very sure of the value that you, you, you are, you're bringing to the projects because they are trusting you and their users are trusting them. So, um, I'm a bit like, I don't know, like reluctant on, on, I don't know, like solo audits as the last, like, uh, unless you're very skilled. So I, I think like personally, I'm still not, not there yet. So I'm working currently on like, it's more like a, a security, um, um, researcher as part of the protocol type of work where I work together with the protocol, I uh, review kind of their code, their PRs, um, and, and I work with invariant tests. So I improve their, their code base, code base with tests. And I also do that type of kind of pre-audits or maybe like peer review where you prepare the protocol for a kind of like a, a traditional audit or maybe like an audit competition by trimming the low hanging fruits, making sure that the documentation is good, making sure that, um, kind of you, you won't, you won't waste, uh, any type of the auditor with like some very easy to find issues that maybe the static analyzer will find. And I, I think like, this is like a, a good thing that maybe like more, more protocols should, I don't know, think about because it's usually like, I don't know, much, I don't know, much cheaper in some, some projects, they, they usually go into the wrong direction of, I don't know, hiring a top tier firm for their first audit, and then they get like tens, I don't know, like a lot of high severity issues and they have to basically reward everything, like redo everything and, and maybe they'll need like a second audit and I don't know, that, 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 that'd be much more expensive. So if you maybe can try fixing uh, and doing like a, a free review uh, and fixing the, 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 the obvious issues before doing a contest or before doing a, an audit, I think that's a good idea. And I've been working with some protocols on that. Yeah, I agree. I think going to a big expensive audit 
right off the gate is a terrible idea. You're going to waste your time and waste their time as well because they're not going to be able to go deeper and find the more interesting bugs. They're going to just spend all their time getting like the low-hanging fruits. And by the end of it, there's still going to be a lot of room to cover. So as a general advice, trying maybe get a, even a junior security researcher can go a long way for just like a first pass for sure. Yeah, definitely. I think that's, that's a good thing that some, some projects are, are, are trying to onboard and implement like currently. And I think like you already get a lot of value by, by having somebody with a security experience on kind of on your team, like maybe as an advisor that will help you make some decisions or, or fix some, some issues before getting more eyes or maybe more experienced eyes into your project. Um, because I think that that also helps a lot with the, um, with the, um, yeah, with, with basically like with the, with, with the output of the final work, maybe like with, with, with the real audit, because then the security researchers won't be spending any time, um, with like very simple problems, basically. Yeah, for sure. Well, Antonio, it's been a huge pleasure having you here. I think the niche that you found yourself in, it's very cool and something that more people should pay attention to because it improves the longevity of protocols rather than just being a checkpoint in time. So I think that's something more people should look into. So thank you for taking the time and coming here. It's been really cool. Yeah, thanks. I'm glad to be here and thanks for inviting me.